Hello and welcome to Truth Conspiracy, where we confront group think and deconstruct assumptions we agree are facts. Asking the question, is what I believe reality or illusion? Group think is the conspiracy, hiding truth in plain sight. Hello everybody and welcome to today's show. Last night I was out with a friend. When I got home I checked my email and I had an interesting subject line in my inbox. What is love? I thought, how ironic, we're going to talk about love in the podcast. So I clicked on it, and it came from a website, verywellmind.com, a website that I like to peruse. And the subject literally was, what is love? I'm just going to go ahead and read the first three paragraphs. The, The entire article isn't that long, but I want to read the first three paragraphs here. I'm quoting the article now. Love is a set of emotions and behaviors characterized by intimacy, passion, and commitment. It involves care, closeness, protectiveness, attraction, affection, and trust. Love can vary in intensity and can change over time. It is associated with a range of positive emotions, including happiness, excitement, life satisfaction, and euphoria. But it can also result in negative emotions such as jealousy and stress. When it comes to love, some people would say it's one of the most important human emotions, yet despite being one of the most studied behaviors, it is still the least understood. For example, researchers debate whether love is biological or a cultural phenomenon. Love is most likely influenced by both biological drives and cultural influencers. While hormones and biology are important, The way we express and experience love is also influenced by our personal conceptions of love, unquote. I had to stop and think about that for a minute. Is that really what we think? Do you think that? I had to step back and actually consider what they're saying. We'll dive into love in an upcoming show, but right now I just thought it was interesting because I will reference love today. You'll understand in a little bit. So with that said... Let's go ahead and dive into the show. Right now, Podcast One has a total of nine unique clicks, and the statistics show me all nine of those clicks listen to the entire podcast. For those of you that listen, thank you very much. I was elated. It's interesting when you start out doing this, you wonder, is anybody going to listen at all? I was going to have a party if one of my intimate circle of friends listened. Nine unique clicks, and I was over the moon. While it was wonderful getting those nine unique clicks, what's even better, four of them provided some really great feedback. Some of it confirmed what I knew was already going to happen. The show was messy, full of definitions, mentally heavy to process. I knew that would happen because I'm building something from nothing. And for those listeners, as I move forward at some point, I'll be able to go back and redo this show and make it not so messy. But there was other great feedback too, some of which I didn't consider at the time. People had difficulty connecting with me. They don't know me, number one, and they wanted the context of who I am and how I got here. I understand that, although I must admit it was unforeseen. I'm thinking like an adult education teacher or an instructor. I wasn't thinking in the context of small group intimacy. They want something to make these more personal conversations with Ron, maybe. 
again, being virgin to this whole idea of talking to an audience I don't know, and I can't see, and I'm presenting something that I am developing, challenges my understanding of personal. However, the word can't is not a part of my genetic makeup. For those of you old enough to remember this, these will be like the fireside chats with President Jimmy Carter. It's important to remember I have no letters after my name. I have not partaken in the world's collegiate system to have any individual thought or a theory or much less any authority to present or express that thought as an opinion or theory. What that means for you, the listener, you should consider everything I present as commentary on events as an expression of my opinion. The point I'm making, I'm not telling you what to think. I'm not telling you what truth is, or fact for that matter. I'm not telling you how to behave or how to act. I am simply presenting a theory based on observations and experiences and providing a systematic thought process to explain an event I've labeled truth conspiracy. Remember, I'm asking you, consider everything I say is wrong. Research it, evaluate it, apply it, work it. See what conclusion you come to. It might be like mine. Maybe not. There's only one person accountable for what you consent to. That's you. Let me say here, there is no judgments from me. I promise you nothing. You don't get anything, become anything. You certainly won't win anything. You won't be better or less than anyone else. I'm not telling you what is right or wrong or how you should live your life. You will simply understand my mental process and how I got to the theory of truth conspiracy. In the final analysis, you're the one that must accept or reject the ideas I present and share here. You are the only one that defines your reality and your experience. That's your choice, and I will not interfere with that. I need to level set here. I would like to take the time to clarify something. I've been pondering this theory of truth conspiracy which is a plausible body of principles offered to explain the phenomenon since 1985. What I've come to realize over the last two weeks, this podcast is the dissertation of my theory. I find it rather humorous in the sense I have never actually spoke it out loud, meaning I've never organized my thoughts into a work to be a nice and easy digestible set of chunks that someone could process. My dissertation is not presented in the halls of academia. I'm presenting my thesis to you, the listener. Now let me say, all of the feedback that I've received over my entire life is coming back to haunt me now. That being, I have this very bad habit of talking about an abstract subject that I've been thinking hard about for years. Then I go and drop it in somebody's lap in 15 minutes. Not only did I drop it in their lap, but I expect them to comprehend and understand what I'm talking about. So not fair. So I'm going to slow down, build a foundation for this idea. Keep in mind I said idea. I will share the ideas or the building blocks that got me to my theory. That way you can follow me. With that said, I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson here. It won't take very long. But in this history lesson, there are certain connection points that I consider are the important junctions, if you will, that brought me to the idea that I'm presenting now. My formative years were in the wake of World War II while I was in the presence of Vietnam. 
America was playing make-believe after the murder of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy while being wrapped warm and snugly in the blanket of the Cold War. I watched the most powerful man in the world, the President of the United States, just up and quit one day, and he did it on national TV. And almost within the same breath, lived through 444 days walking home from school, past yellow ribbons tied around trees, while the impotency of another president was on the world stage. I'm referring to the Iranian hostage crisis. In 1972, I was eight years old in second grade and attending the public school system. While somebody in the public school system somewhere had this great idea to teach children to spell by phonics, what that means, to spell the word by how it's pronounced or how it sounds, not by the actual rules for spelling. That set off a myriad of consequences in my life I struggle with to this day. Spell check is one of the many miracles I am thankful for. This was also the year I discovered the Willard Public Library in Battle Creek, Michigan. To my eight-year-old mind, this place was a fortress of books. I mean, it was a mecca. It was huge. It was like seeing one of the seven wonders of the world. At that age, I would walk over and pull out a book and just sit down and start looking at it. To me, it didn't matter what the book was. It was information. My mom, on the other hand, felt like I should be reading from the children's section I don't know why I was never really interested in any other children's books. The Encyclopedia Britannica? Oh, man, that was... That opened the doors to possibilities, stuff you couldn't even conceive of at my age. I loved the technical manuals, too, specifically ones about electronics. They were the proverbial crystal ball into how everything worked, which at that time was the nut of my curiosity. How does this work? The issue at this point in my life, I had a really difficult time reading. I had to do it slow, very methodical and deliberate. Everyone used to wonder why and ridicule me when I would have a piece of paper underneath the line in the book I was reading. For me, looking at a page of text, I tried to take it all in at once. In other words, my eyes were trying to look at every word at the same time And because of that, I wouldn't be able to read because of that distraction. Also at that age, I had this nasty little problem of inverting the words. In other words, I would see them backwards, what we call dyslexia today. One can quickly see the dumpster fire, and I cannot overemphasize the word dumpster fire, phonics spelling created for me. It didn't matter, though. I loved being at that library. In the course of time, I found this one section... And it was all the older books. You know the older books. The ancient books. The leather-bound books that creaked when you open them. That was a great section of the library. The look of the books on the shelves. The smell of the paper. The way the paper felt against my fingers. I absolutely loved that part of the library. I know at this point you're asking, what the heck does any of this have to do with a truth conspiracy? I don't remember how old I was. I don't even remember the name of the book. I remember it was in the old section of the library, though. I just remember the title, An Essay Concerning Human Understanding, written by John Locke. I remember reading in this essay a statement by Locke that personal identity was sameness of consciousness rather than in terms of the sameness of immaterial soul or physical substance, i.e. our body is not our identity. 
Now, let me say, that's a paraphrase because I don't remember exactly what I read in that book. The key word was consciousness, though. I had very little understanding of what that meant, but it seemed to line up with Spock on the original series of Star Trek, which, of course, I watched with religious fervor every time it aired. Let's roll forward to the summer of 1978. The man that raised me was not my biological father. Regardless, I still refer to him as my dad. Not just my dad, he was my hero. My dad and I were building this bedroom addition onto the house. My dad being a veteran of the Navy, we were talking about all things United States Navy, as always. We were in the process of nailing the plywood sheeting onto the roof and decided to take a break, setting up on the peak of the roof, looking out over the lake. I asked him about Vietnam and why we were there. At that point in my life, I would see my uncle, my biological father's brother walking around town broken. As a young boy, I remember my uncle as one AJ squared away Marine. At this point in my life, to see him a broken shell of the man I remembered, I simply couldn't quite comprehend that. My dad had never spoken about his personal experiences in Vietnam, and he loved to talk about the Navy, but he never spoke about Vietnam. On this single solitary occasion, I crossed the invisible line and asked him about it. I thought he didn't hear me. I decided not to press the issue. I just sat there and took in the view of the lake. Thinking back on it now, it seemed like an eternity before he spoke. When he did, he said, in a matter-of-fact tone, you know that tone. All dads have that matter-of-fact tone. When you were two months old, I was stationed on board a destroyer named the USS Turner Joy. We were running operations with another destroyer called the USS Maddox. He went quiet again for what seemed to be a half an hour. However, my mind was racing. I'm trying to put those little bit of facts into some kind of context that applies to me. After a while, he started to speak, and he was trembling with anger. He said in a low, barely audible voice, with a very distinct tone I will never forget, They lied to the world. There was no attack. That's all he said. That was the only personal thing he ever shared with me about Vietnam. It was my Michigan history teacher that helped me to understand the significance of the Gulf of Tonkin incident and the subsequent impact of that. It would be 1994 when the full impact of that conversation came back to me. It would be then that I would understand what he was trying to tell me. Roll tape forward, high school, my psych class. I had this really cool teacher Him and I were as much as friends as we were teacher and student, and I was able to talk to him about really deep philosophical questions, which were very intellectual to me at the time, and probably very trivial for him. I distinctly remember this pinprick in a conversation we were having. He made a statement, you are your consciousness. To this day, I can't remember anything else about that conversation other than that statement. The reason I remember it, it tied back to that book I had read from Locke. Fast forward, now I was a young adult, living life. There were girls and adventures, places to go, people to see. This heady idea of consciousness was far from my thoughts. Now I'm going to bring you into the intersection of death and the road that led to my theory. In 1985, I was in the Navy, stationed in California. I was in the checkout line of the Station PX and picked up a book. The title grabbed my attention. The day we bombed Utah, America's most lethal secret. I thought the book was going to be some quirky work of fiction, 
a sci-fi novel, little did I realize this small 187-page book would forever alter the trajectory of my life. The story chronicles the persecution of Mr. Kern Bullock, a sheep rancher in Cedar City, Utah, and the subsequent persecution of many other sheep ranchers by our own government. This story has proven to be the stake drove through my patriotic heart. Up to this point, I believe the United States was the force of good, a nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. I lived the ideal. Our government did as well. Right? They took the same oath I did. I simply could not believe the government disregarded a large swath of the U.S. population as collateral damage. To do what exactly? I enlisted because I said the pledge every day and I believed it. My family served for the same reason. Duty. I remember it like it was yesterday, thinking if this is true, what am I really doing? What am I a part of? What am I propagating? That staked through my soul, Mr. Bullock's story, established a persistent cognitive dissonance that is consistent to the time of this recording. Kern Bullock's story was the proverbial red pill initiating the wake-up sequence for me. In 1986, the movie Platoon was released. The crux of the story is about an enlisted man named Chris Taylor, played by Charlie Sheen. He played this doe-eyed kid in no man's land between these two sergeants, one that was good and the other not so much. In the final sequence of scenes, Chris Taylor is reflecting as he's being taken out of Vietnam. I'm going to quote the movie. I think now, looking back, we did not fight the enemy. We fought ourselves. And the enemy was in us. The war is over for me now. But it will always be there, the rest of my days, as I'm sure Elias will be, fighting with Barnes for what Ra called possession of my soul. There are times since I've felt like the child born of those two fathers. But be that as it may, those of us who did make it out have an obligation to build again, to teach to others what we know, and to try with what's left of our lives to find a goodness and a meaning to this life. Unquote. I sat there, slapped numb. The contradiction of terms dramatized through the characters of Barnes and Elias and the violence those two ideologies represented assaulted all senses of reason. They were on the same team, or were they? The extremes in duality boiled over as I tried to reconcile the contradiction. The plight of Kern Bullock took on a very different significance, a more ominous and pressing significance. How does this extreme of duality exist? It was almost in an instant I recalled from where in my brain I don't know this old Pogo cartoon. Pogo was standing in the middle of a litter pile and underneath of it in a, in a caption it said, We have met the enemy and he is us. All of a sudden, the idea of consciousness was alive and well now. And it was fully internalized and it was abrasive and it was uncomfortable. It was gnawing at me. I was fighting for equilibrium between the new information and this internal paradigm that I had. What are we doing? What am I doing? Why am I doing it? It was here a cast was set. There's a word I want to establish here. A friend of mine once told me I, I was an iconoclast. I didn't even know what the word was at the time he told me that. And I had to look it up. An iconoclast is a person who attacks settled beliefs or institutions, a person who destroys religious images or opposes their veneration, a person who criticizes or opposes beliefs and practices 
that are widely accepted. Roll on to 1994, and I'm doing what I love to do. Sit in a bookstore, randomly picking up titles, and reading. I was perusing the sea of titles when one jumped off the shelf and hit me. America Ground Zero, The Secret Nuclear War. The author, Carol Gallagher, impacted my life so abruptly it shattered my carefully crafted narrative that left out the inconvenient truths I didn't want to acknowledge in this life. She was my iconoclast. The book is a collection of people in portrait telling their stories of what it cost to be an American. These are the stories recorded in first person of the American collateral damage of the atomic era. They are known as the low-level use segment of the population. Gallagher wrote in the prologue of her book, and I want to quote a section here, quote, More than once after settling into work in Utah, I had been told I was, well, let's put a good face on it, not much more than an East Coast city slicker. Horrors. There was much to learn about the ways of regional prejudices that divided and conquered us as a nation. First of all, I stopped telling people I was from New York, the city America loves to hate. Knowing a bad thing when I heard it, I had exterminated my New York accent by taking speech lessons in high school. But, realizing that even my appearance might be alienating to rural Mormon people so different than myself, I changed it. I grew my hair, abandoned trousers, put on the longer skirt and modest blouses, often covered myself further with a vest or jacket, took the ebullience and assertiveness out of my voice and toned down everything about me. Dorothea Lange had much good advice for documentarians, all of which I followed, but the most useful adaptation was to wear the cloak of invisibility. I wanted to become a blank slate upon which the stories and images could be written, but to do this I had to lose my own needs in history for a while. Perhaps at times I became too lost for my own good, but a new life in a virgin landscape can yield fresh and heartfelt photographs, new ways of thinking, muting one's own voice for some years to listen to the stories of others can be a golden path to understanding, unquote. Carol Gallagher left me with a simple challenge, step up or step off. The book had very little of her own words in it. The work is a photo journal with the person known as the downwinder telling their stories. My insides literally hurt for weeks. I read and reread the book maybe six, eight times. My mind couldn't wrap around what Carol's work presented. The words in my head just kept screaming in repetition, the United States are the good guys. You are the good guy. The story in my hands, right there in beautiful black and white, the personal experiences reveal an atrocity, that of which I still can't even begin to reconcile. The raw, unabashed reality of what is was laying in front of me. It was then, quite literally, there was the sound of a rushing wind. A sludge hammer landed its blow square into my thought process. My dad's voice. They lied to the world. There was no attack. It's here we find the catalyst that started my journey. Now that I've brought you through the connection points, over the course of the next several shows, I will be discussing the principles of a truth conspiracy. What makes it work? I will not be discussing the subject of the truth conspiracy directly. I want to present the mechanics of how it works, so should you see it, you'll understand it. 
However, I may refer to the subject of a truth conspiracy as a point of reference or consideration along the way. The kernel or the seed of a successful truth conspiracy comes in five parts. Each one of these parts have subheadings, but I'm just going to talk about the five individual parts. Personal identity, assumption, the principle of abstraction, childhood development, and specifically the development of what's called schemata, and moral development. I will discuss these five points in a very topical and elementary way. Each one of these subjects you could dig into for months. There are great scientists and theorists that have devoted their entire lives to these subjects that I'm going to present in several thousand words. There are huge repositories of information concerning each subject. They go back hundreds of years. In my presentation of the subject, it's not my intention to diminish or trivialize any of these works by oversimplifying them. And please, everybody remember, while I've been researching these topics for years, there are people that have never even heard of the subject. Remember, one person's over-elaboration is another person's clarification. We're going to talk first about personal identity. This is the root, or the seed, if you will, that everything else grows from. The question of personal identity is a fascinating study. It's referred to as the empty question, meaning the question is valid, however, there isn't a logical answer. The subject has intrigued and vexed the mind of many philosophers, psychologists, and sociologists over thousands of years. The library of books concerning personal identity is so voluminous, one could not take it all in within a lifetime. I have no intention to try to correlate or associate any of that material here. I'm going to break it down to a simple binary understanding. Although, I will take the output of some of those scientists and assemble a picture for you. When it comes to personal identity, in my opinion, the crux of the matter comes down to the concept of persistence. What is persistence? Persistence is a simple idea. It's the continuation of an effect after the cause is removed. Anyone who's played the game peekaboo with a small child understands this concept of persistence. When a child is small and you play peekaboo with a stuffed animal, you hide the animal and the child thinks it's gone. When I did this with my kids when they were young, one of my sons actually believed that the animal died and he would cry. As the child matures, when you hide the stuffed animal, the child understands it's just outside of their sight. But it didn't leave the room. It didn't die. The stuffed animal persists even though the child can't see it. That's persistence. We could spend an entire show just talking through the various theories of identity. They are numerous, well thought out, logical, and multifaceted. Ironically, I believe they're all incomplete because of the persistence principle. The problem presents when we don't objectify the binary state of the human being. The theological definition would be spirit and body. I won't disagree with this definition, However, it makes it extremely difficult to work with. The difficulty comes with the word spirit. It's a loaded word. It comes pre-charged with all kinds of religious, occultic, paranoia, mysticism, supernatural, Kabbalah, superstition connotations. It comes packed with all of that. And I would dare say right now, there are listeners who heard me say spirit is a loaded word and the hair on the back of their neck is standing up. That's how charged the word spirit is. So I pulled the entire concept into a different symbolism. The summation of all the arguments present one common element. That element, you are formed from nothing, 
You evolved into something and your consciousness evolved with you. And then you're going to go back to nothing. And your conscience is going to go back to nothing too. I approach this concept from an inverse proposition. Work with the consciousness first. You are source consciousness. Meaning everything about you from the smallest component is formed from a thought to an idea to a manifestation. In other words, your DNA did not create your consciousness. Your consciousness created your DNA. The question then of your identity becomes moot. You are source consciousness. Once you get past the emotional response of what I just said, just consider the idea. Your identity is already set. Call it what you will, but you are source consciousness. Let's unpack it just a little bit. Each one of us is a binary being. That is, you have a consciousness, which going forth will be referred to as ego, and you have the persona, a.k.a. what we're going to call the mask. Let's stop and ponder that for a minute. Some people, let's say half the people, I wish that were true, but I know it's not. For the sake of brevity, let's say half the people realize, comprehend, and understand what I just said, while the other half do not. For those of you that have not explored this, the persona, for all practical purposes, is the mask we wear. It's important for you, the listener, to understand your persona, i.e. the mask that you wear, is a mask of your own making. From the moment you took your first breath, you have been instructed, conditioned, corrected, punished, and rewarded for building the correct mask. I understand that statement may be hitting some of you in a very adverse way. All I ask, you bear with me while I develop the frame to support this theory. So then, what is identity? From the perspective of God, or source, you are an individual holographic fractal of the source creator, the whole, meaning you maintain all the attributes of the source creator. I am very much aware at this point, this statement is eliciting all kinds of emotions across the spectrum of beliefs in this world. What's important to understand, you are source, a part of the whole. Now, you have to be careful here not to get caught up in conflation, that is to think that you are God. It's also important to understand you are not a God. You don't get to go around and proclaim yourself as some sort of demigod. You're a holographic fractal of the whole, maintaining every attribute and characteristic of the whole. The best analogy I have for this is to think about a battery. Every device we play with today has a battery, be it your cell phone, your iPad, the Bluetooth microphone hanging on your ear. Each one of these devices has a battery. The device can do its work for a specific period in relation to the battery present in it. Now think about your car battery. Your car battery can charge the battery on your iPad. However, the battery in your iPad cannot charge the battery in your car. Source is like the car battery, and we are like the devices. It doesn't matter what size the battery is or what work is being done in relation to the battery. The fact is they are all batteries doing the same thing, the same way. Now, if source is love and you are source, then you are the embodiment of love in a biological interface. In the book of Matthew, the 22nd chapter, in the 36th through 40th verse, it records the following transaction, and I quote, A man approached Jesus and stated, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. End quote. Stop and consider what he's telling you. There are six key words that unravel the whole verse. At the start of verse 39, and the second is like it. What is Jesus telling you there? If you are a fractal of the source creator retaining all the attributes of source, and the person standing across from you, be it friend or foe, is the same thing, how does this work? And the second is like it. Loving God is to love yourself, and to love your neighbor as yourself is to love God. Everything is source consciousness. Nothing can be created without source consciousness. I'm not telling you what to think, nor what the facts are. I'm not telling you what to believe or what not to believe. I'm not asking you to change what you believe. I'm humbly asking you to consider a different point of view. With this understanding, holding a temporal spot in memory, consider all of the recorded teachings of Jesus and overlay them on this definition. How do those teachings look? Do they make sense? Consider what Jesus is recorded as saying in the book of Matthew chapter 5. We'll start at verse 40. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Can you see the correlation? This simple understanding, if you give consent to believe it, establishes your identity. It's non-negotiable. You are love. As opposed to what we read at the beginning of the podcast, it's not a feeling, it's not an emotion. You are love. It's a being. The persona, on the other hand, or what might be considered carnality, is death. The impact of what I'm saying, then, the consciousness with the ego is in unity with source. The persona, i.e. the mask that we wear, or to put it in biblical terms, the flesh that we live in, is at war with the consciousness. To put it simply, the persona is busy telling, quote, God, who he is and how he's going to act and respond to us. The singular constraint in this, love defines us. We do not define love. This simple example of inversion is huge in the element of understanding. Now, what's important here, this is a core element in the grand truth conspiracy This is the proverbial seed everything else grows from. Think about it. If you never come to understand who you are, how can you ever become who you were meant to be? The truth is hiding in plain sight. Let it sink in. How long has this been going on? Consider the impact. If you elect to stay with me, I assure you we are going to unpack this and so much more. So there you have it. I put it right out in front, this idea. You now get to make a free will choice, as I said. Write me off as a heretic or consider what I have to say. Again, let me emphasize, I promise you nothing. You don't get anything. You don't become anything. And you certainly will not win anything, obviously, as you can see. You won't be better than anyone else. You won't be less than anyone else either. You will simply understand who you are. In the final analysis, You are the one that must accept or reject the ideas I share here. You are the only one that defines your reality, your experience. That's your choice. I will not interfere with that. Now, if you elect to stay with me through the rest of the podcast, 
as they say, the show must go on. What is referred to in this reality as God going forward in the series of podcasts, I will not refer to the creator of the universe as God. I will refer to it as source. The term God is a loaded term. Once the word God is invoked, what picture comes to your mind? What feelings are you experiencing? That picture that just presented to you, those feelings represent how loaded the term God is. Therefore, the word God, which is really a symbol, is poisoned. Why, you ask? No two people have the same picture. To help you understand why I make this assertion, consider this. We refer to God as the Father. We assign to God the male gender. However, the Bible does not assign male or female to God, but refers to God as spirit, being neither male nor female. What does that imply? Where is the female in that picture? What is happening to her? What picture is in your head now? Do you feel that annoyance starting? So this consciousness part that is God, what does that mean? And furthermore, how does it impact you? While we are so busy defining the persona, in ignorance we neglect the ego or the consciousness. We as a people are so worried about what to do, we seldom stop and ask the question, who are we and why are we doing what we do? Within the paradigm of relationship to who we are. When reading other sacred texts, predominantly they all say the same thing in one form or another, you are a spiritual being. That moves the question from what we are supposed to do to who are we? Why do we look to other created beings to tell us who we are spiritually and how to move and have our being? The problem presents itself at birth. You come into the world, a newly formed mind-body-spirit complex, or what I refer to as the biological service unit, or a biological interface. It's in here we find the core of today's show. The situation at birth, you are minty fresh. However, you as a person are approximately 12 years out from being fully operational. Stop. Think about that for a moment. You come to the world in the usual way with a clean slate, so to speak. For 12 years, you accept volumes of information without challenge. Where did it go? What did it do? Does it impact you? In what way? It's kind of summed up in this song that was sang by Paul Simon called Kodachrome. And I'm quoting the song here. When I think back on all the crap I learned in high school, it's a wonder I can think at all. And though my lack of education hasn't hurt me none, I can read the writing on the wall, unquote. That's a really good summation of that 12 years. Through the program of indoctrination, starting with your parents, to your family, to your friends, to academia, and to the social structure, you are programmed to believe you are the product of an egg and a sperm coming together, forming something from nothing. You are the product of an evolutionary process that took millions of years to evolve into a sentient life form that only lasts for about a hundred years. No matter what the derivative of the story, the punchline is this. You were nothing that became something that will return to nothing. Think about it. Really? Stop and consider this proposition. What is the impact of that? How do you feel considering that? The consciousness part of you, the ego, is treated with indifference. That annoyance you feel, it's not an emotion as much as it is source attempting to counter the story. Your persona is in contradiction to your ego. Do you understand now why persistence when it relates to identity is so important? But what's more important than just the concept is getting it in the right order. Persistence comes first with the consciousness. It does not apply to the persona. 
A movie quote fits here with a couple of small tweaks. I'm modifying an oracle quote from The Matrix. You're going to have to make a choice. In the one hand, you'll have the persona, the mask you wear. And in the other hand, you'll have your ego, your consciousness. One of you is going to die. Which one will be up to you? I'm sorry, kiddo. I really am. You have a good soul. And I hate giving good people bad news. Oh, don't worry about it. As soon as you turn off this podcast, you'll start feeling better. Your persona will remind you. You don't believe in any of this fake crap. You're in control of your own life. Remember? Again, that's the Oracle from the Matrix with the Ron Bojo tweaks. Now consider this. If you had been told when you were a child, three, four years old, you are love and motion and expression in bodily form, you would, at a minimum, have been exposed to the ego. The persona would be molded by a very different influence. Yet ego is treated with indifference for how long? As though it doesn't even exist. Does this mean the ego is not being formed? So who's influencing the ego? Make no mistake about it. Someone is. However, not in an overt fashion. To the contrary, it's very covert. One might even say subliminal. The influence is quite simple. Don't trust that still, small voice inside you. Trust what your senses tell you. Trust the system. Trust us. The dupe is in. Quite literally, the result is the persona, i.e. the mask that you wear, is ruling the ego. This is the proverbial tail wagging the dog. Why is this important to today's show? I hope to establish we as humanity do not understand who we are. And make no mistake about it, we have always been ego, i.e. source consciousness. Without that understanding, without that foundation, any other outside influence has the advantage and will take you captive, give you an identity, binding you in slavery and servitude. It's just that simple. In this overly simplified definition, the goal is to establish you are a singular entity in binary, comprised of a consciousness that comes from the source creator in the body that was created to operate in this world or this reality, the binary being, ego, persona. Without that understanding, you cannot have autonomy or what is referred to as personal agency. That is the understanding that you are the one causing or generating an effect. Be it good or bad, you are the one co-creating with source your reality. To say you are a free will agent has far more impact than we've ever been told or taught. The principle I hope to open your eyes to without understanding your identity, someone will give you one. The question I hope is in the forefront of your mind, why? Why would somebody give me an identity? This is going to be very important in upcoming podcasts. What is the impact of someone other than source telling you your identity? Should it be what I'm saying is true and you are a fractal of the source, then you would have more power than you can possibly imagine. The next question would be, are you using the power you've been given or are you giving your power away? That brings us to the end of today's show. For those of you that came back to the show, thank you for taking the time to listen. And for those of you that are new to the show, I also thank you for taking the time to listen and I hope you return. Until our next show, may peace and plenty bless your world with a joy that long endures. May all life's passing seasons bring the best to you and yours. You've been listening to Truth Conspiracy. Until next time, remember... 
the obvious is so difficult to see most of the time. We quote the old axiom, it's as plain as the nose on your face. However, how much of your nose can you see until you look in the mirror?